All right. So how are your brackets going? It is that time of year. I want to know who had Loyola in the final four. Pretty much nobody. Okay. That actually has something to do with the sermon this morning, but before we get there, let's turn to the scriptures. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're coming to the end of this uh, year-long journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're at the beginning of chapter 15. And I am delighted to get here because it means we have gotten through all the controversial parts. And uh, there are still some issues to wrap up in the last two chapters, but um, uh, this is a great relief uh, coming after last week's uh, sermon. So I'm going to talk about the gospel today. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and please listen carefully as this is God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and they appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. They appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of the basics of the gospel, the power of the cross, the glory of the resurrection. Thank you that 1 Corinthians is pointing forgetful people like us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. Bring us to the cross. Show us the empty tomb. Bring us your grace. Change our hearts. Change our lives. Have mercy upon us. And so we pray, by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Back to the brackets. We have an office pool going, and it has already been determined uh, that Frank Wong is going to lose, and Frank Pugh is going to win. And, uh, but uh, I'm not sure any of us did particularly well. Uh, Frank Pugh did okay. He's got three of the final four still in there. We'll see what happens today. Uh, I have nothing. I, I have Villanova left, I think. John's appreciative of that. The, uh, but watching the NCAA basketball tournament reminds me every year that no matter how complex a team gets, 
how talented it is, how sophisticated the game plans are, a team that forgets the basics can be beaten by a far less talented team that doesn't. In basketball, the basics are simple. Pass twice before you shoot. Don't rush your shot. Don't shoot off bounds. Block out so you can get the rebound. One guard stays back to stop the fast break. For somebody that plays a lot of basketball, those are sort of simple, intuitive things until you don't do them. And when you don't do them, well, we've seen pretty clear this year's tournament, a lot of teams have forgotten the basics, at least for one game. But since it's a one-and-done tournament, forgetting the basics for one game sends you home. And it doesn't matter if you are seated number one. UVA is watching the game from their living room. It doesn't matter if you are a pre-tournament favorite as North Carolina is watching at home too. And it doesn't matter if you were picked to go all the way by ESPN as Michigan State is now wondering. If you forget the basics, it's a matter of time until you wind up out of the game and you're going home. But if that's true for college basketball, how much more is it true for the church? Back in chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, we read this. It said, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If we're going to finish the race, if we're competing for imperishable things, for eternal things, for as C.S. Lewis would say, the weight of glory, how important is it going to be for us to not forget the basics of the gospel? Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, I received and passed on to you the basics. Why is he bringing this up? As you know, 1 Corinthians is a letter to a troubled church. If you've been following along as we've gone through this book all the way since last September, I think you'll actually find yourself feeling a lot better about our church. This is the way a lot of us cope with our problems and our flaws. We find somebody else who has more problems and more flaws, and we just stare at them for a while. And then we feel better. And we say, well, at least I'm not like that guy. As the Pharisees said, God, thank you that I am not like him. And that's comforting for a while. And it'd be very easy for us to look at the church at Corinth and see all the problems. They had divisions. They were arguing. They were arguing over spiritual gifts. They were arguing over gender roles. They were arguing over sexuality, church discipline, all sorts of things. And how does Paul deal with it? Well, we're getting to the end of the letter. And how does he deal with it? He says, it's time to bring out the basics. You can never get beyond the basics in basketball. And the reality is you can't get beyond the, beyond the basics in any field. And certainly you can't get beyond the basics in Christianity. And what I'd like to suggest this morning 
whether you're a skeptic about Christianity, whether you're not sure what you believe about Christianity, whether you're a new believer or you've been a Christian for 25 years or more, your fundamental problem today is possibly that you have forgotten the basics. No matter what issue you're dealing with, if you're a Christian, you need to ask yourself, is the reason I'm distressed today because I'm forgetting the gospel? That I'm forgetting the basic thing that originally brought me into the kingdom of God? Is the reason I'm upset, the reason I'm angry, the reason I'm ashamed, the reason I'm anxious because I've forgotten the basics. And I want to suggest to you the answer to that question is always yes. The Corinthians have forgotten the gospel basics with disastrous consequences. And so Paul decides to remind them of just what the gospel is. And so he starts in verse 1 with, The response to the gospel. That's the first blank there in your outline. The response to the gospel. If I could have the first slide um, up here. I have a slide. Somebody have the clicker? There it is. All right. So you get to look at that. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, neatly up there in yellow, that I preach to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So we're just going to leave that up there for a while. So what's the key word here? Well, it shouldn't be hard to figure out since it's in bold and in yellow. Gospel, right? Paul is writing to remind the Corinthians and us because as it turns out, it's really easy to forget to lose sight of, to be distracted from the basics of the Christian gospel. And so he wants us to brush up on the basics and to make sure that we get it right. He wants us to get on message and to stay on message. And before we think about the content of the gospel, we need to ask the question, what is the gospel? So let's look at these first two verses. The first thing we notice is Paul has not yet defined the gospel. That comes next. But he's talking about how they have previously responded to the gospel and how he wants them to respond to it again. So notice how Paul speaks about the gospel. He says, it's the gospel that I preach to you. Verse 2, it is the word I preach to you. So very clearly, the gospel is a message. We don't do the gospel. We don't live the gospel. We cannot be the gospel. We can tell the gospel. We can share the gospel. We can preach the gospel. It is a message. It is a word. Paul mentions it several times. He says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached, by which, by this gospel, you're being saved. So let's start off with this word, gospel. So the truth that you have to receive in order to experience the power of the resurrection, which Paul is going to expound in the next section of this chapter, and providentially we're going to cover next week on Easter Sunday. Isn't it amazing how that happens? Freedom, is, and he's going to, in order to experience the power of the resurrection, and that we might have freedom from our slavery to sin. 
So there's a very basic level of the gospel. Experience the power of the resurrection, freedom from slavery to sin. The word gospel, some of you may know, is the Greek word euangelion. And if you saw it spelled out, you would see that we get our word evangelism from it, spelled very similarly. And euangelion comes from the Greek word agalos, from which we get our word angel which means messenger. So when an angel or a messenger brings a good message, it was called euangelion, the good news. And therefore, the gospel is the good news, which begs the question, why is the gospel good news? Now, remember I told you the key word in these first two verses was gospel? What if I showed the verses like this? Can I have the second slide? Well, that looks a little different. Now I would remind you. We read over this really quick and don't realize the word you shows up eight times in these two verses. It not only gives us a new key word, you, but it helps us understand two things. It helps us understand why the gospel is good news. And it helps you understand how you are to respond to this good news. Now, all of this good news, gospel, goes all the way back uh, to when the Greeks were trying to take over the world. And they would fight a great battle, and everyone back in the city-states of Greece were nervously waiting to find out what would happen. And so the Greeks would send a messenger on foot. Many times the Greeks would send their armies to northern Greece. They always wanted to fight in northern Greece because it's flat. And so they would go to those plains where great armies were trying to come down to conquer it. And uh, so there were these great battles in the northern parts of Greece in which the Greek city-states sent their soldiers. They fought against various enemies seeking to conquer them. And whenever they would go out there to fight a battle, all the people back in the cities were scared to death. What's going to happen? Are we going to be conquered? Would they, are they going to make us slaves? And so after they had won a great battle, the Greek army would send a messenger. And the messenger would run back to Sparta or Athens or wherever and say, we triumph. That's euangelion. That's the good news. There's been a victory that has saved you from slavery. After the famous battle at Marathon, the messenger ran back to Athens and said, we triumph, and dropped dead. And that's why we call long races today marathons, because all the runners drop dead at the end of the race. <laughs> Not really, but that is where the name came from. But the runner came with a message, and the message is there's been a victory. It's been fought on your behalf, and it's saving you from slavery. That's good news. And Paul has chosen this very important word, this very technical word, euangelion, the gospel, to describe the most fundamental truth of Christianity, that the gospel is always good news, that someone has fought a battle on your behalf, has triumphed, and now you are free from slavery. That's what it means. When Paul came and took the basic Christian message and called it gospel, he's saying a battle has been fought for you 
you are free. And so then to take your stand on the gospel means that your entire life is changed by this news. Have you experienced the good news? Have you taken your stand on it? Everybody has something they take a stand on, some approach to right and wrong or standing on a religious approach or a common sense approach or some approach that demands a response. Is it actually good news? Some of you, what you're standing on is the idea, well, here are the standards and I'm going to live up to them. I would tell you that's not good news. That's not the gospel. Unless you're aware that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most wonderful thing you've ever heard in your whole life, then you probably haven't heard it. You probably haven't gotten it yet. You probably haven't fully understood it yet. And that's why Paul says some very striking things. By this gospel, you are being saved. (coughs) If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain, the very bottom there. You think he's getting his point home here? Who he's talking to? This really makes you look at the passage very differently when you line it up like this. To believe in vain, vain means empty. It means you have an empty faith you haven't really believed. It says if you hear the gospel and you forget it, maybe you never believed it. If I give you this gospel and you forget it, you lose interest in it, you fall away from it, you never really had it. You never really got it. You never really understood it. And what we have here is a specific body of objective truth. And only when you hold fast to it, only when you receive it, are you saved. (coughs) Obviously still fighting the whole voice and throat thing. What are you saved from? Well, that brings us to the basics of the gospel, verses 3 to 7. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And they appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Paul says, The gospel is a body of truth that I received and I'm passing on to you. That's an objective statement of truth. Paul is not saying, I did a lot of study, I'm a very bright guy, and I have arrived at this liberating principle. He doesn't say that. (coughs) For those of you that don't know, I'm having surgery in a month, my nose and throat and uh, hopefully it'll help. We have no idea. Um, so, it'll be the beginning of May. Um, only because they couldn't do it earlier. 
here is not, <coughs> is not saying, I arrived at the truth. What he says is, the truth arrived at me. It came to me. I passed it along. I didn't come up with it. I didn't discover it. I didn't create it. I received it. If you want to get down to the basics, what Christianity is all about, what do Christians believe, what's the irreducible core that you have to believe in to be a Christian, have spiritual life, it's right here. We can take that slide down now. We often say when it comes to Christian doctrine, we should major in the majors. Well, these are the majors. If you're, even if you're skeptical of Christianity, you need to get straight what Christians actually believe, what Christianity actually is. This is the gospel, these verses starting at verse 3. So let's just move right through it. There's several parts to it. And the gospel is first and foremost about the person and work of Jesus Christ. It's about sin and substitution. It's about death and resurrection. And it's about astonishing, transforming grace. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ. So as soon as he begins his summary of the gospel, he says, that Christ. Everything else in the whole paragraph <coughs> is a set of clauses or phrases that explain Christ. All points back to Christ. So if the core of Christian teaching is the gospel, the good news of Christ, then right away we're confronted with what makes Christianity different from all the other religions. All religions tell a story about their founder. But the founders of almost all the other religions are teachers, not saviors. And because they're teachers and not saviors, their life stories are not the core of that religion. The core of those religions, the five pillars of Islam, or the eightfold path of Buddhism, they're instructions about what you must do. Since the founders are teachers, the core of those religions are instructions about what you must do. But the core of Christianity is a gospel. It's not instructions about what you must do. It's good news of what has been done. It's not advice. Christianity is not advice about what you must do. It's good news about what he has done. But one of the most striking things about this whole passage from verse 3 on all the way to the end is there's nothing in there about what you must do. The gospel doesn't here in 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't even mention that you have to repent and believe. Now you have to repent and believe the gospel if Christ is going to be part of your life. Paul actually said something to that effect in verse 1, the gospel which you received. And we know we receive the gospel by repenting and believing. Paul told the Ephesians in Acts 20, I did not shrink from testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Apostle John wrote at the beginning of uh, the gospel of John, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But technically, as we said, that's a response to the gospel. It's not actually part of the gospel. Why not? Because the gospel is that nothing you can do, nothing you will do, nothing you have ever done can be the basis of your acceptance with God. It all happens through what Jesus has done. 
So even repenting and believing isn't technically the gospel, it's a response to the gospel. And what's the first thing we're told about Jesus? It says that Christ died for our sins. Sin and substitution. First of all, sin. First thing we're told about uh, what Jesus came to do is to deal with sin. We're uninformed and we need wisdom, yes. We're sufferers and we need relief, yes. But what we're learning here is, first of all, that we're sinners and we need salvation. Sin is our most fundamental problem. If there's a God who created you and sustains you and redeems you, then you owe him everything. You owe it to live totally for him. And sin is the teaching of the Bible that we don't live for him. We don't live for God. We live for ourselves. We live self-centered. It's a sinful response. And this is saying that Jesus died on your behalf. He was a substitute. He died instead of us. He took what we deserve. In other words, Jesus Christ took our place, the place we deserve to be, dying on the cross. If we believe in him, then we get the place he deserved, at the table, in the family, a child of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he, God, made him Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So a lot of different metaphors the Bible uses to describe what happened on the cross. There's the language of the marketplace. Sometimes it talks about how Jesus paid a price on the cross. Why? Because sin is debt. In ancient times, if you had a debt you couldn't pay, you went into slavery until you could pay it. Well, Jesus is our ransom with his death on the cross. He redeems us out of slavery. He pays the price, so we're liberated. Another kind of language that's used to deal with the cross is the language of the battlefield. Why? Because sin is not just a debt. Sin is also an evil in you and me. It makes us do things we hate. It absorbs us with ourselves and fills us with fear and all sorts of things. We do things we don't like to do. So it's an evil inside of us. And Christ comes, and the Bible talks about Jesus going to the cross to defeat the powers of evil and sin and death. It's a terrible struggle. He suffers horribly, but in the end, he fights and wins for us. There's also the language of the court. The language of the court says sin is a violation of the law. If there's a God, you want him to be against evil and injustice, right? You don't want God to be passive. You don't want God to just watch. You want him to do something about him. You want him to be judicially wrathful against evil and injustice. But then if we have evil and sin in us, that judicial wrath, that condemnation comes on us. And so Christ comes and takes the punishment we deserve. There are others, but these metaphors are wonderful because they show us different aspects of the human problem and different aspects of the rich salvation we have in Christ. But you notice there's a thread that runs through every single one of them and several more that I could offer, and that's substitution. Jesus fights, Jesus pays, Jesus takes, Jesus bears what we couldn't bear. It's the reason John Stott, great Anglican minister, loved John Stott. Went to be with the Lord a few years ago, maybe the most influential pastor of the late 20th century. Um arguably, but I would argue it. Anyways, John Stott says, 
The concept of substitution is crucial to understand sin and salvation. Since you can't understand the gospel without understanding substitution. So what is it? If you substitute yourself for God, you're starting to define sin. You're putting yourself where God deserves to be in charge of your own life. You didn't make yourself. When you say, I'm going to call all the own shots, what are you saying? I'm my own maker. I'm my own creator. And you're not. It's kind of a cosmic plagiarism. By the way, you're woefully underqualified for the job of being Lord of your life. Sin is substituting yourself for God. Well, salvation is God substituting himself for you. Putting himself where you deserve to be. It's God going to the cross and taking your punishment, paying your debt. The very first thing out of Paul's mouth when he's summarizing Christian basics at the core of all Christian belief is that Christ died for our sins. It's death and resurrection. Let me see the third slide here. There we go. You see these verses you see some common things there. The format here is a gospel outline. You should know each of the four points begins with that. That's not an accident. It begins with that. It introduces the basics of the gospel. That Christ died. That he was buried. That he was raised. That he appeared. Grammatically speaking, Christ is at the center of these verses. Christ is the center of the gospel. Christ died, Christ was buried, Christ was raised, Christ appeared. The critical first and third elements that Christ died and that he was raised are each according to the scriptures. And finally, the first and third lines are supported historically by the second and fourth lines. He died and he was buried. He was raised and he appeared alive to a sequence of people. The burial confirms the fact of the death and the appearances confirm the fact of the resurrection. The gospel is grounded in history. If you could prove that Christ never lived, was never crucified, and wasn't raised from the dead, you would totally undercut Christianity. It rises and falls on its historical reliability. Christ died, he was buried, he was raised, he appeared. That's the basics of the gospel right there. That's what you need to believe in order to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior who died for your sins. Your faith and your repentance are in response to these truths applied to your life by the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, you begin to understand the grace of of the gospel. That's the third blank there, verses 8 through 11. The grace of the gospel. Last of all, to one untimely born, we can take that slide down. I do really like that slide. The, uh, he says, last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. One of my favorite verses. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not empty. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them 
than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Notice three times he uses the word grace. The gospel is about grace, grace, grace. However, grace doesn't mean, okay, you're accepted, that's all there is to it, it doesn't change you. Of course it changes you. He says, his grace to me was not in vain, it was not without effect, as some versions say. And man, that's an understatement when we're talking about the Apostle Paul. Paul persecuted the church. He killed Christians. He hated Christianity. He's one of the most influential people in the history of the world. He was brilliant. And he hated Christianity. And yet grace changed him. How can grace change you? Because starting, grace is undeserved. And once you realize God's grace is undeserved, it humbles you. Paul tells us the story very quickly of his conversion. We can see the whole story in the book of Acts. But very quickly here we see, you know, outside of the crucifixion, just to digress, we have more information in the New Testament about Paul's conversion than any other historical event. Why? Because all of us have to become Christians. We need a model for how that happens. And the Bible basically puts Paul in front of us. And Paul even realized that. In 1 Timothy 1, he said, For I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul realized he was the pattern. And what's important in understanding Paul as a pattern for us is there's a timelessness about Christianity. He was originally named Saul. He became Paul after he became a Christian. This is a guy who lived thousands of years ago, radically different culture than ours. And yet Paul knows and the scripture knows because it keeps putting him in front of us. In spite of the uniqueness of every Christian conversion, there are some essential features that we all share, all of us. In spite of all the differences, there's a sameness in every conversion. Every human being who's a Christian today became a Christian. Some conversions are dramatic. Some are very slow. Some come very late in life, and some are very early. But they all have the same features. So what's a Christian? How do you become a Christian? The answer is seen in Paul's life. If you want to see the basic features of Paul's conversion, he has them here. He says, I was a persecutor of the church, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. There it is. I was that, but now I am this. What's between the was and the am? Between here's what I was and here's what I am. Grace. I was, but by the grace of God, I am Something else. What is it that brought Paul from I was to I am? By the grace of God. What is the grace? How could it do that? What does this tremendous life change happen by grace? What does that mean? Well, first of all, it's by grace because you don't really seek it. You know, the reality is before you were a Christian, before I was a Christian, even while you were becoming a Christian, you think you're a sincere seeker after truth. I mean, everybody who hasn't become a Christian thinks he or she is a fairly sincere seeker after truth. You feel like if there's a God and I saw a way to God, I'd want to know him. I'm basically pretty moral. I'm pretty decent, better than most people. 
You know, you feel you're a fairly sincere seeker after truth. Everybody feels like that until they become a Christian. And then they know they weren't like that. You never were. You never wanted God. You were trying to avoid him under the guise of being a seeker. The only people who know they're not sincere seekers are Christians. The only people who know they didn't want God, and many of us did everything we could to avoid uh, God, to stay away from God, are Christians. Because they know the only reason they're Christians is that God came and showed them where he was and who he was and what he had done for them. That's what the message of grace is. Jesus Christ, because he died for you, because he lived for you, if you trust in him instead of what you think is a pretty good version of yourself, if you transfer your trust from yourself to him, and what happens then is God accepts you in Christ. I'll put it this way. If all the self-help books in the world, uh, if you could read them all, please don't. Um, but if you could, they're all going to essentially tell you something like, don't let what everybody else says be of any importance to you. All that should matter to you is what you think about yourself. Don't let other people validate you. Validate yourself. Decide what your standards are and live up to them. You alone can validate yourself. That's not just stupid. It's also silly. I mean, try this. Go look in the mirror and tell yourself, looking in the mirror a hundred times, you're great. Dave, you're the best person I've ever seen. But then what happens when one other person comes up to you? Maybe it's somebody from work, and they say, thanks, that was great, you're great, you're doing a great job. You're one of the best people I know. Will those words that you said in front of the mirror a hundred times have the same impact as that one time out of somebody else's mouth? No, you can't validate yourself. You can look in the mirror and say, I'm great, a hundred times. But when somebody else comes up and says, you're great, finally you believe it. And the message of the gospel is you're not here to validate yourself. You can't justify yourself. You can only be justified by another, the Lord Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He lived for you, he died for you, and he rose again for you. Remember those basics. That's the gospel. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that, as always, you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see Jesus, our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you. We confess our unbelief and our lack of repentance. We confess we often forget the basics of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. We forget the cross 
and we forget the empty tomb. And we ask now for your forgiveness. We ask for your grace. We ask to be reminded again and again and again and again of the basics of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the beloved Son, our Savior, that you came and you died for our sin according to the scriptures, and you were dead and buried and rose again and appeared to many. We thank you, Father, by this resurrection from the dead. We know that Jesus lives, and we stand in a perfect relationship with you because of what Christ has done. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you've opened our eyes so we can see these truths, that it's not by being good, but it's by Christ's own perfection that we can be right with you. And so we pray for grace to embrace the truth as it is in Jesus, that we as a church might be to the praise of your glory. In the matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.